And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. I'm feeling really accomplished over yeah. this past weekend. Yeah, we got a lot done. Uh, we got all our Christmas shopping done. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm feeling proud of us. Mm-hmm. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, I didn't sleep well last night, so I'm a little tired, but gonna just push through and do the episode anyway because the show must go on maybe this movie will like spook you awake probably not like isn't that a thing like scare you awake like scaring hiccups yeah i mean i you know what if it does that i'll be impressed because (laughs) new number one yeah what are we watching uh today we are watching a classic sarah we are watching one of the big ones as it were we're watching 1941's The Wolfman, starring Lon Chaney Jr. Nice. Who's the director? George Wagner. I feel like we could make a joke about his last name being Wagner, and this being about a, a dog. Sure. Like the tale that Wagner's the dog? Yes. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. Nope. Good. So we've had several failed attempts, you could say, at werewolf movies in the past. We had sort of an ersatz werewolf movie in (laughs) wolf blood yes episode 15 and we had a werewolf movie that was kind of a jekyll and hyde ripoff really in werewolf of london episode 50 i think it speaks to the fact that the wolfman was so successful that it's kind of you know the movie people think of when they think of werewolves uh no one remembers henry hull and also it's the movie that kind of codified the lore around werewolves yeah. in the same way that, like, Bram Stoker's Dracula novel codified the rules around vampires. You know, mm-hmm. before that book, a vampire was different if you were talking to someone from, you know, this side of Europe versus that side or whatever. And after that, it was like, nope, these are, this is how it works. And I think that's kind of what happened here. We've talked a bit about werewolf folklore in those previous werewolf episodes, but I don't know. I wanted to hear about what was a werewolf to people (laughs) in their minds. In 1941? Yeah, before this movie came out, because this movie sort of makes a lot of appeals to Eastern European folklore, as it (laughs) were, and that's a little bit different than, say, the werewolf we got in Werewolf of London, who was very, like... From Tibet. (laughs) Well, and, like, like science-y a little bit, where it was, like... You know, there were serums involved and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, what what's the traditional werewolf like? Remind me. In Wolf Blood, and, and episode 15, it gave myths around the specific type of werewolf called the Lugaru, mm-hmm. um, which is a specific French-Canadian thing. The myths around the Lugaru are pretty tied to the French diaspora. Yeah, it's all kind of francophone, like... There's variations on what it's called yeah, from place to place. There's but... the Rougarou yeah. in New Orleans, yeah. you know. Um, so if you want to hear about that particular flavor, check out episode 15. And I think Wolf Blood's a great example of what people kind of considered werewolves at the time. In the sense that it's just people, specifically men, mm-hmm. turning into 
specifically wolves. Right. There's no, like, half man, half beast. Right, sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, the word just means man-wolf, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but then you, in your brain you kind of understand how we get this kind of furry version right. of, of a wolf when, like, traditionally it was just like, you just turn into a little wolf. Yeah, it's, it's, it's some shape-changer stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I give a bit of this, I guess, like, outlining of myths in episode 50 on Werewolf of London, so if you want the full deal, go listen to that. Was Wolf Blood episode 15 and Werewolf of London episode 50? Yes. Okay. Here I'll just be going over the broad strokes a little mm-hmm. bit. The earliest example of werewolves in fiction comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses with King Lycan. That's where we get the name Lycanthrope. Right. Uh, King Lycan offends the gods because he wanted to see if they were truly all-knowing, so he feeds them human flesh, and they're like, what the fuck, dude? You get to turn into a wolf. Permanently. I know a lot of people would not consider that a punishment. <laughs> then kind of like the next example is Petronius's Satyricon in kind of the first century A.D., where he has men turning into wolves. Mm-hmm. But it's all very, like, one-directional. Sure, yeah, it's it's like... You, you, you're a wolf now. Yeah, it's it's a fairy tale thing of, like, you got turned into, you know, this prince got turned into a frog. This king got turned into a wolf. Like, yeah, exactly. not really what we would think of as a werewolf in modern terms. Exactly, yeah. Um, kind of the first example of... A werewolf turning back and forth comes from the 12th century story Besclavre uh, by Marie de France. Her story features this this guy who, um, well, a baron, I should specify, uh, who every three days out of the week, he turns into a wolf, and the only way he can turn back is if he puts on his regular clothes. Okay, so nothing to do with, like, a certain time of the month. Nothing to do with the moon. It's just, like, these three days, he can't help it. But it's kind of, like, indicated that, you know, he just turns into a wolf. He's not, like, rabid. He's not going around attacking people. He's just off doing that. He's just got a chronic wolf-turning-into condition that he's dealing with through the treatment of wearing his big boy clothes? Sure. Gotcha. To kind of fast-forward a bit, because a lot of werewolf fiction kind of sticks to the idea of you're turning into a wolf specifically, but also a lot of fiction that's considered to be about a werewolf is really just something to do with wolves. Like in one of them, a a guy appeals to a wolf spirit so he can control wolves and Mm. it's called the the wolf leader. Mm. So it's a very, very loose category, I guess. Right. It sounds like before you know, the definition of werewolf was kind of decided upon, uh, werewolf could be anything, is kind of what you're, what you're telling me. Or at least that the, the genre category was a little bit diverse. Yeah. When you ask someone to point to, like, you know, vampires have Dracula. Mm-hmm. Werewolves have Werewolf of Paris by Guy Endor, uh, published in 1933. Yeah, we've mentioned that before because Guy Endor wrote some horror movies in the mid-30s. He did. Also, that book got published in 1933, and then two years later we had Werewolf of London. Very similar title. Yes, exactly. They were, like, going off of the hype of the book, 
Now, Werewolf of Paris is historical fiction where it's about this werewolf who goes through the Franco-Prussian War up to the Paris Commune in like 1870-71. He turns into a wolf. He, it's not like a half-man thing yet. It's literally a wolf. And he can avoid turning if he sucks human blood. So there's a bit of like a vampire thing going on. So it's not definitive in any sense of the word, uh -huh. but it was just kind of like top of mind to everyone. And it was a big hit. And that sparked the production of Werewolf of London from Universal Studios. And I would argue that that is almost like taking all these disparate parts of werewolf legends and melting them down. Mm -hmm. They're still not solidified, but it's now molten and ready to be solidified in a mold uh, for Wolfman. Yeah, because I mean, Werewolf of London's werewolf, I can't remember if it really had anything to do with um, like the full moon, but I know he transformed at night, right? Yeah, so his whole deal is that our main character... I forget his name. I don't really care. The actor's name was Henry Hull. He was a scientist of some kind. Yeah, he was a botanist, and he traveled to Tibet to study this specific plant called the Marifaza plant. Only grows in Tibet, and only blooms during the full moon. Right. One night when he's, like, out studying the plant or something, he is attacked and bitten, and he is actually bitten by a werewolf. Mm -hmm. And this is the first instance that we get of half-man, half-beast type werewolf. Mm. He brings these Merphaza plants back to London, and he is trying to make them bloom using, like, a fake moonlight because the bloom can be used as a serum to stop him from turning into a werewolf. Right. When he is a werewolf, it's during the full moon, and he must kill at least one person right. when he's a werewolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, so... What's kind of interesting here is we have the moon coming in. We have something about a plant. It's not wolfsbane mm -hmm. yet, but it's Merophasa, which is fake. Um, and we have the fear of what will I do when I'm turned Yes. in here. Yeah. I mean, part of that is coming from the Jekyll and Hyde, which you kind of mentioned at the beginning. Werewolf of London is really borrowing a lot thematically from Jekyll and Hyde. It, it kind of brings it into the werewolf legend. Yeah, it, it sort of introduces this idea of a, being a werewolf being like a tragic, horrible curse thing, right? Exactly. It was it was unique when we watched it for the fact that the monster was the protagonist. Yeah, and I will just note that at the end, Henry Hull, as the werewolf, is shot by an ordinary bullet, but when he dies, he turns back into regular Henry Hull. Yeah, like the ending of every Jekyll and Hyde movie. Yeah, but I just feel like it's important to note that as a beast, if you're killed, you turn back into your human form. Yeah. But at this point, it's just a regular bullet. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how they pulled kind of things from all over, because I bet the reason he's half-man... Like, they talk about... We talked about this in the episode, that he's more human than Wolf in his appearance because it was a plot point that characters had to be able to recognize him. Mm -hmm. But I also bet just like, you know, in terms of making a movie in the 30s, having your lead character literally just become a wolf wasn't manageable, right? You can control an actor a lot easier. So having him become a half-wolf is a lot easier to manage. And then the pulling in of the full moon stuff is so fascinating because the full moon traditionally is so associated with... Um, Basically with mental health disorders, right? It's where we get the word lunacy, all Mooning. of that. 
Yeah. And, you know, because it used to be believed that people just went crazy during the full moon. And um, lycanthropy, outside of the fictional idea of werewolves, was, you know, for a very long time, a diagnosed mental health disorder of just people who think they are wolves. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting, you know, seeing the way it pulls that in, pulls in the Jekyll and Hyde stuff we mentioned. And it's that original definition of lycanthropy that we actually see in wolf blood. Mm -hmm. There's no real transformation. He just gets a blood transplant from a wolf, and so he starts to think he is turning into a wolf, but there's no evidence showing that he does. Yeah, and then, you know, the transformation being caused by being bit by a werewolf is something, you know, that's clearly being photocopied in from, like, Dracula, right, and vampire lore. Yes, but, and I mentioned this in episode 50, that most attacks by wolves Mm -hmm. to people are from Rabid wolves. Yeah. And rabies transfers through a bite. Now, back in our very, I think it was like the Nosferatu episode, I talked about rabid wolves and their ties to vampiric lore. So you're not wrong in saying that infection through bite can come through vampire lore, but they both have kind of an older origin of rabid wolves. For sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, it's just sort of interesting to see the way that that movie sort of pulled from a lot of different places Mm -hmm. and still, you know, didn't end up with a definitive take quite yet. Yeah, and that's maybe because it was, like, grafting a lot of these weird myths onto the Jekyll and Hyde kind of formula. Yes. Yeah. So in The Wolfman, what we get is a lot of plot information and rules about lycanthropy and how werewolves work that is presented through the form of essentially what the movie is telling you is Eastern European folklore. Mm-hmm. And um, spe- Which is not wrong. Uh, <laughs> like, werewolf folklore, you know, it's pretty centralized in, like, central to Eastern Europe. Yes. Is the, kind of what I mean. The, the idea that, yeah, werewolf folklore is common in Eastern Europe is... Uh, an authentic one. The actual folklore itself, different story. Yes, yes, sorry. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to imply something else. The source of this exposition in the movie is um, a very heavily fictionalized depiction of Romani people. Mm-hmm. And in the film, of course, they use the term gypsy um, because that was just kind of the blanket common term in mainstream culture for a very, very long time. And that word is sort of considered derogatory today. We might use it in a few places throughout the episode, but only in reference to the fictional characters that exist in this movie, because it's the term that the movie itself uses. I think, you know, the other thing about the Romani culture is... It's been subjected to a lot of stereotypes and yes. myths and uh, sort of urban legends almost of its own. And that's, you know, it's, it's almost pretty accurate to say, I think, that the, the version of the Romani people who appear in this movie are just as fictionalized as the werewolf, basically, at a certain point. Yeah, honestly, you could even liken it to lycanthropic, uh, liken it to the way witches are kind of portrayed. Yeah. Um, where it, 
what you picture in your mind of like like the the wicked witch of the west that right. is a completely fictionalized version of what a witch originally was conceived as yeah exactly you have this real thing that over time culturally got turned into a a caricature you know um and of course there's a lot of discussion around you know uh culture as costume is something that comes into this and in play in a lot of places so the movie depicts a uh, Romani group. So because it's so heavily fictionalized and because there's a lot of myths and misconceptions and sort of negative stereotypes uh, about uh, Romani culture, I felt like maybe that was something else that we should learn about. I got you. The term Romani refers to the Roma, which is kind of a group of people who have kind of no ties to a particular geographic place. Mm-hmm. They're, they're itinerant. Their identity is tied to the ideal of the freedom that comes in having no ties to a homeland. Mm-hmm. Now you can kind of see where the extrapolation of no ties to a homeland, what do you stand for, uh, kind of goes with how they would end up being discriminated against. Historical prejudice against immigrants is a problem today and has been a problem throughout history. And if you are a you know, a nomadic traveling people, you're kind of the ultimate immigrants, right? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. With this constant travel, you can't trace Roma to a specific place. Mm. You know, in the same way that I can be like, my family came from Prussia and blah, blah, blah. So there's no, like, origin story, really, for them. But the earliest record of them occurs in 11th century Byzantine Empire. So I hesitate to bring up genetics Mm. in regards to them, mainly because they were very targeted with scientific racism in the late 19th century. Yeah, eugenics movements and stuff. Yeah, so I I, I hesitate to bring this up, but I will just like note that they have no genetic markers consistent from a single place, Mm -hmm. but people have kind of traced origins to be in like Southeast Asia area, kind of with India, Middle East, that kind of area. Yeah, I think um, if I remember correctly, it's because the the language you can kind of linguistically trace to languages from uh, the Indian subcontinent. And in the particular flavor of patriarchal society they have, and some cultural beliefs, you can kind of trace it to Hinduism. Mm-hmm. That it's it's many, many, many centuries since leaving there. Yeah, for sure. So you have obviously a, a, a great deal of cultural shift and change, not only from the amount of time since leaving, you know, that place, but also absorbing the cultures of the people around you as you move through different nations and peoples. Exactly. As Roma traveled, they would work as craftsmen, artisans, and just also like traveling entertainers. Music is very integral to their identity, so they would perform as they would go. And in the 1400s, so the 15th century, migration and travel is very common with people going from town to town, transporting goods, things like that. So not a lot of TSA border control in the 15th century. <laughs> no. So um, the Roma were kind of considered a novelty in the sense that they have these artisan skills and they provide entertainment. But it's not weird that people are nomadic. Mm-hmm. As Roma migrated westward across Europe, you know, they're kind of going into Germany, kind of the Balkan areas, 
and eventually to England. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this Western migration coincides with an increase of kind of generalized vagrancy. Okay. And by that I mean, like, there was um, huge population growth, poverty, and poor harvests. So a lot of people were just ending up homeless or having to beg. And Roma kind of became the, like, face of these types of people who um, don't have homes, basically. Sure. And I mean, it's not like the way we treat uh, refugees coming to our doorstep has changed a lot in, you know... A few hundred years. Yeah. With this rise of vagrancy, there became a lot of distinctions between the deserving poor, um, oh, you're a child on the street, let me help you, I'm so mm-hmm. sorry, and the undeserving poor, get a job, you hippie. Yeah. Uh, w- w- you know, growing yeah. up in Alberta, I, I certainly understand that distinction being used against people. Yeah. Um, and Roma like I said, became the face of the undeserving poor because they made the choice to live an unsettled lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, they broke these conventions of social, economic, religious, and political life. And that's kind of why you don't really see any kind of anti-Romani policies coming in to play until, like, the 1530s. Sure. And this kind of coincides, too, with um, the very beginnings of the rise of things like nationalism, where all of a sudden we kind of care about where, where you're from, where you're from, and yeah, exactly. Who you are. Yeah. Now I don't want to say that's like only once the 1530s hit was their anti-Romaniism. Right. They had kind of been persecuted as they migrated. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a brand new thing. As they kind of migrated westward, it was actually kind of in line with the Ottoman Empire growing, and like you said, a rise of nationalism. So they were kind of characterized as spies or people who have no allegiance to our country. Right. That being said, some of the earliest anti-Romani legislation occurred in England, which kind of makes sense. They're an island, so they're very like... Yeah, this is ours, get out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's also an attitude in Britain that hasn't changed in several hundred years. Yeah. Um, So the first mention of Romani entering England is in 1514. In 1526, King Henry VIII expelled Romani from England, and any caught entering England were straight up killed. In 1530, so four years later, the English government passes what's known as the Egyptians Act. Right. This is something I didn't mention. At this time, Roma are just called gypsies, Mm -hmm. because it's believed that they come from like a small place in Egypt. Yeah. So, Egypt gypsy. Um, and that's also why you see this, like, Egyptians act when they, they aren't from Egypt. Yeah, they aren't Egyptians. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's the same thing as, like, Indian to refer to indigenous American. It's, someone decided you were from a place. They didn't think to ask <laughs> you where you were from. They just kind of decided, and that's, yeah. the term just stuck. And for the record, um, Roma is the word for people in Romani. Yeah. So that's why they are asking people to use that phrase now. Yes. Yeah, so this act comes into play, 1530 is passed in 31, and again, it expels Romani, it directly characterizes them as thieves and fortune tellers, and they are given 16 days to get out of England, or assimilate Mm. into an English settled lifestyle, or die 
England is not the only country to have these types of policies. Um, in 1538, then Moravia, which is like part of Bohemia, now known as the Czech Republic, had anti-Romani legislation. Um, in 1541, Romani were expelled from Prague. Uh, 1548, in Augsburg, kind of in the Germany area, the government was like, killing a Romani is not murder. Yeah. Further policies across continental Europe and England included taking Romani children away uh, to be raised by settled families. And by settled, I mean the real German family, or like people who are like Little from that houses. country. Yeah. Outlawing marriages to Romani when they find a Romani person, they brand them with iron, forced labor, and mass killings. Mm -hmm. So, all pretty awful, and it was all considered justified by citing the amount of thefts that would happen when Romani entered the city. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what was kind of interesting is, um, like, I, I noted the uh, migration westward and how kind of the turn against them in terms of, like, structural racism uh, happening with the rise of vagrancy. Mm -hmm. um, some people have actually, like, looked at this and seen comparisons to industrial development. Because yeah. you... Like, the value of artisan or crafts made by Roma would get devalued because, you know, why would I buy this when I can just go down to, like, the store and buy this mass-created product? Well, and also in a more heavily industrialized society, land use becomes very specific and commercialized, so it's not okay anymore to just be living anywhere because, well but this lands for this purpose and this use. And, you know, as, as people become more urban, too, it becomes more difficult to live a nomadic kind of existence as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, for example, England had the 1822 Turnpike Act, which um, meant that people would be fined for camping on the road. Right. Now, there's a lot of other uh, specific policies I can point to, like the 1824 Vacancy Act, Things like that. 1908 in England um, had compulsory education for Roma children. Um, things like that. But you can kind of see it ebbing and flowing mm -hmm. um, in terms of like anti-Romani policies and then repealing those policies and kind of going back and forth. But it's all kind of coming to a head in World War II. Yes. In 1899, Germany established the what, what they call the translated title of this agency is the Intelligence Service Regarding the Gypsies, and they cataloged names and the location of Roma, um, which made it very easy for uh, the Nazis to put them into concentration camps. Yeah. Roma kind of called this genocide, porimus, um, literally the devouring. Hitler considered Roma enemies of the race-based state. You can understand why he would see them as a threat because, A, they don't have a homeland, and homeland is a big deal in Nazi ideology, mm -hmm. and there's no way to confirm whether they are Aryan or whatever. Um, so you can see why he would see them as a, a threat in this bogus way. Yeah, and they're, you know, for the same reasons that he considered Jewish people a threat. It's, it's a very similar kind of thing. These are diasporic people who are some sort of other and don't belong here, and therefore are subhuman in that ideology, right? Yes. It's estimated that 220 to 500,000 Roma were killed. Current Roma academics actually 
suspect that the number is much higher to be 1.5 million. Mm -hmm. But in any case, even with the kind of smaller numbers, it's nearly 50% of every European Roma killed. And it's probably a lot harder to track specifics versus something like, um, you know, the the, um, extermination of the Jews that was happening at the same time. Because if you're an itinerant traveling person, it's a lot harder to you know, compare counts or records of, okay, who was alive before and who was alive after, because there aren't as many specific, you know, you can't just look them up in an address book and be like, oh, that guy doesn't live here anymore. He must have died, right? It's not as cut and dry with being able to kind of match those records that way. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the story of the Roma up mm-hmm. to current time, 1941, where we're at. Um, I will say that, like, anti-Romani sentiments and policies do still exist. Um, They have been repealed, but since World War II, things have gotten better. Obviously not fixed, and also I'm not Romani, so I might just be, you know, I'm looking at, like, dates of, oh, this was repealed, this was repealed, this guild was established. So just looking at that is where I'm coming from with things have gotten better, but I don't have the lived experience, so I can't say for sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's sort of similar to things like civil rights movements in, you know, the United States where the laws can be passed, but it takes a long time for the actual attitudes to change. Um, I know that there are EU protections uh, in place for uh, the Roma, but, you know, because I know that that was actually a, a big deal with Romania as a country has never treated the Roma very well. Yeah. And that was a, a big deal with when Romania wanted to join the EU, having to clean up their act, basically, to put it one way, in terms of how they uh, treated the Roma in their borders. Mm-hmm. And another example, this isn't about the Roma, but the sentiments are kind of the same. Irish travelers mm-hmm. were not officially recognized as an ethnic group in Ireland until 2017. Yeah. And since I just brought up Irish travelers. Irish travelers are basically a nomadic kind of culture in Ireland, but they have no ties to Roma. They are their own thing. Um, They are nomadic, and that's the only similarity. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I did not mention them until now. (laughs) Sure. So that's a lot that I just kind of threw out. I wasn't sure when or where to mention this, but when you think of the idea of a Romani person, Mm -hmm. especially as they are characterized in pop culture and in Wolfman, you might be wondering, what religion are they? Oh, sure. Are they pagan? Um, Like, in in Wolfman, you would suspect that they were pagan or Wiccan or something along those lines because of the way that they give the folklore. Yeah, they have a very kind of, um, in in pop culture... Mystic, yeah. Yeah, nondescriptly mystic. They're, they're, you know, yeah. So I decided it would be interesting to point out that Roma have no, like, specific religion that's tied to being Romani. Their religion varies to the region that they are in, and even sure. within whatever region. Um, they ha- can be Muslim, Orthodox Christian, Catholic, literally anything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no specific religion to being Roma. But it's not like a Muslim family coming into a predominantly Christian area has not faced prejudice. So it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
religion has not been the reason why they've been persecuted. Sure. It might have attributed, but it's more their... I, I like how you put, like, their immigrant status. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about Romani culture and Romani uh, religious beliefs is, similar to the African diaspora, um, one of the things that you do see is a kind of Creole or blending of older, maybe Hindu-based cultural beliefs uh, from, you know, years and years and years ago, mixing with, like you said, the religion of wherever they happen to be, uh, whether that's Christian or Muslim, where what you get is kind of a, a Christianity that might have a slightly different flavor. And to be honest, that's true of all religion. So to kind of bring it back to Wolfman, we've seen some Romani people in horror movies before. Um, the family in Frankenstein that the creature kind of stumbles upon and disrupts their dinner. Mm -hmm. But in that case, the family was just there. Um, you could tell because they had a, a wagon and the fact that they were like camping in the woods, that they were Romani. Mm -hmm. Um, they were nomadic. But here in Wolfman, it's like, no, let's give details as to what the culture of the Romani people are. And they totally get it wrong. Yeah. I think it's worth saying to kind of link the two that over the centuries, a lot of inaccurate perceptions of Romani culture were created from the fact that I think a lot of them are rising a from the derogatory treatment they regarded, you know, so you're going to attach negative stereotypes with them, but also B with the fact that because they were nomadic they're mysterious. they're mysterious. You don't, a lot of settled Europeans didn't really know a lot about them. Hence the, you're probably from Egypt, right? Kind of <laughs> thing. Um, so, you know, you start making up things if you don't have real information, right? Yeah. So. Like I think of the Roma woman in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right. Esmeralda. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they became a very stock character too mm -hmm. in European uh, literature and in a similar way to, I feel, the way that indigenous Americans get treated in a lot of North American uh, pop culture, one of the stock roles of the Roma in, like, European literature was to be basically, like, a mystic or someone who could be magical in a way, yeah. right? Like, in the same way that there's this bizarre depiction of, you know indigenous Americans get to just be magic in pop culture. Same thing with the way that the Roma were depicted. And, and what's kind of shocking about it, too, is how recently they are still depicted that way. You know, like, the plot of Stephen King's novel Thinner is that the dude gets cursed by a gypsy. And that book came out in, like, what, the late 80s, early 90s? Definitely, yeah. And I think the reason behind this is movies like Wolfman. Because what The Wolfman really did as a film is turn Romani into a horror trope, mm. right? Where, you know, for a long, long time, horror movies are set in Eastern Europe in a Transylvania-ish area. <laughs> Transylvania-ish, You know, yeah. Romani are part of the backdrop. They're part of the setting the same way that crumbling castles and full moons and lightning flashes and bats are, right? To yeah. the point where when Dungeons and Dragons did their horror-themed adventure, Curse of Strahd, there is a Romani analog in that game, uh, the Vistani. 
And what's interesting about the way that they became this trope is, as I was kind of saying a little earlier in the episode, they became, I think in the eyes of a lot of people who consumed that media, a fictional thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that gypsies were as real as witches and werewolves and vampires. They were another type of fictional creature, basically. And they have certain... You know, in the trope of what a gypsy is, they have certain abilities and they have certain powers. You know, they're fortune tellers and they're seers and they can put curses on you and this kind of stuff. And and there are certain things that are associated with them. You know, I, I thought it was... I was really struck when you talked about Roma children being taken from their parents to be raised by settled adults. Because it reminded me of the residential schools in Canada. Well, and one of the biggest stereotypes of Romani is as baby stealers. Yes. That's like one of the big, you know, stereotypical things that they were accused of doing yeah. that was bad was they would steal your baby. That's Esmeralda's origin yeah. in Hunchback of Notre Dame, for example. So, yeah, we see a lot of that in Wolfman. This creation of basically othering a type of person, a real type of person, to such a degree that they become like a fictional thing, which is is kind of wild to me. Like it's it's. I mean, it's not just Wolfman's shoulders, right? No. Like when was Hunchback of Notre Dame written? Like the eighteen yeah, hundreds. Like it's been a trope for a while, but Wolfman is the one that takes that caricature and places it in a horror genre, and yes. especially Eastern European folklore context. Yes, this is where they become a horror trope. To the extent where you have to have them, basically, if you're going to do that type of story. One of the things I think contributes to this is not to say that there are no Romani in America, because there are. Yeah. But I think there's much less history of them in North America, and the average American has much less experience with interacting with someone who is Romani to the point where... I can see how you would come away thinking that gypsies are a fictional, magical type of person like leprechauns that don't really exist. Yeah. And you could, like Stephen King did in Thinner, propagate a lot of negative stereotypes out of the sheer ignorance that there is a actual real person that you're hurting behind mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So let's talk about Wolfman? Yeah, what... <laughs> this is a really good episode. I'm really happy that we, we included this context setting of Romani people, I guess. But but tell me about like the making of the movie. Yeah, because I feel like usually our episodes get heavy towards the end, and I feel like we just front-loaded the heavy this time around, and it's like we haven't even... with genocide. Yeah, we haven't even watched the movie yet. Yeah. So, as we mentioned, Universal had tried to make a werewolf movie in 1935 to disappointing results. But... The continued demand for horror and the studio's unwillingness to headline Bela Lugosi and their former star Boris Karloff's reticence to work for them all kind of combined to the point where the studio needed a new star for their horror movies and they needed a new marquee monster to focus on so they could move away from Frankenstein's monster and Dracula who were so strongly associated with these actors they weren't on good terms with anymore. Then Lon Chaney Jr. made Man-Made Monster, and that kind of showed them the way forward. So 
I do recommend you go back and, and check out our episode on Man-Made Monster if you haven't listened to it already. Uh, it was one of our two Halloween episodes this year. In that episode, I talk a lot about Lon Chaney Jr. himself and his life up to the point that he became a horror icon at Universal. But suffice to say, he, of course, is the son of Lon Chaney Sr. and spent a lot of his life dealing with growing up in his father's shadow. In Mad Made Monster, he starred in his first horror movie, and we talked about in that episode that movie being like a prototype for Wolfman due to the way he plays essentially an innocent, easygoing guy who gets turned into a monster against his will and kind of becomes pathetic and tragic and then dies at the end. So Universal felt that they could trade on the value of his father's name and therefore turn Chaney into a new horror icon and that his character's tragic arc from Mad Made Monster gave them a template for how to reinvent the werewolf character from their earlier movie that had kind of just been a Jekyll and Hyde ripoff in terms of its structure. Yeah, I mean, in the Man Made Monster episode, we did kind of note that the tragic monster is similar to Frankenstein's monster. Yes, very much so as well. And I think it would be foolish to think that Universal didn't realize that that kind of pathos was key to the appeal of a movie like Frankenstein. Yeah. So, George Wagner, the director of the financially successful double feature of Horror Island and Mad Made Monster, was reteamed with Lon Chaney to helm the film that was to be called The Wolfman. Uh, since appearing in Man Made Monster, Chaney had appeared in supporting roles in musical comedies and westerns, making The Wolfman his return to a starring role since Man Made Monster. Top billing in the cast for the movie, however, would not go to Lon Chaney Jr., but rather go to Claude Rains in his first horror role since his screen debut in 1933's The Invisible Man. In the intervening eight years since we last saw Claude Rains, he had built quite a respected film career, uh, carrying on from his already well-respected stage career. He signed to Warner Brothers in 1935 and appeared in such films as Scrooge in 1936, playing Jacob Marley, The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, playing Prince John, and he also made an appearance in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Still in the future for Claude Rains includes such famous roles as his appearance in Casablanca, or much, much more in the future, his appearance in Lawrence of Arabia. To create the scenario for the film, Universal brought on the writer of The Invisible Man Returns, Black Friday, and The Ape, Kurt Siedmack. Born in Dresden, Germany in 1902, he and his brother Robert Siedmack fled Germany for America due to the anti-Semitic policies of the Nazis. While the film's story contains a lot of appeals to traditional Eastern European folklore, the reality is that Siedmack invented much of the werewolf legend and Romani culture in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty much all made up whole cloth, including the very famous ancient poem about yes. werewolves, which is first spoken in this movie and then repeated in all of Universal's Wolfman movies. Instead of folklore, Siedmack's primary inspiration for the story was his experiences watching the rise of the Nazis in Germany. For Siedmack, living a normal life that was suddenly thrown into chaos and paranoia by the 
Nazis coming into power was akin to living in a village suddenly beset by monsters. Mm-hmm. And he viewed the average Nazi, a relatively normal, ordinary man transformed into a vicious killer, as being like the werewolf himself. Interesting, because we've just been calling the werewolf, the wolf man, tragic mm-hmm. and full of pathos. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to me that Kurt Seidmack would have sympathy for someone who has turned to Nazi ideology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he felt that the rank and file, you know, the, the average Nazi, was just an ordinary person, and that therefore the tragedy and the horror was to be transformed into a killer by this ideology. So his view, and I mean this is not everyone's view, obviously, but his view was that Nazism turned these people evil and dangerous and and murderous the same way that the curse of lycanthropy, you know, turns Larry Talbot murderous. So for the Wolfman, Universal makeup magician Jack Pierce (laughs) was able to return to his originally intended design for the monster in Werewolf of London. As we mentioned in that episode, his original design was rejected because it covered too much of the actor's face, but Lon Chaney Jr. wanted to show that he could live up to his father's reputation as a man of a thousand faces and agreed to do the heavier makeup, a decision he would come to regret. Chaney sat in the makeup chair for six hours to have the makeup put on and another hour to have it taken off, a process which he came to regard as torture. The hair that Pierce used for the makeup was yak hair. Oh, that's so hot. He would glue it to Chaney in layers so it looked like, you know, real hair growth. Uh, And the way this was done was by heating the adhesive with a hot iron, uh, which would then occasionally burn Chaney's skin when the hair was applied. Yikes. What Chaney hated most of all were the lapse-dissolve transformation sequences, when he had to stay as still as possible on set between shots as the makeup was applied or taken off little by little. In later years, Chaney would come to greatly exaggerate the nature of his suffering when retelling this story, such as once claiming that he was nailed down during the process and couldn't (laughs) move at all. Uh, When he could get up between shots and go to the bathroom, it was fine. The makeup wasn't the only thing upsetting the actor, As punishment for damaging studio property while drunk, the Universal executives took away Chaney's private dressing room and gave it to his lady co-star, Evelyn Ankers. The 23-year-old actress had appeared in a dozen movies over a five-year career to this point, but The Wolfman was her first Hollywood picture, her earlier films having all been made in Britain. Ankers found herself the victim of practical jokes perpetrated upon her by Chaney, ostensibly as revenge for what he perceived as being a slight against him by her taking his dressing room. As if she has fucking control over that. Grow up, Lon Chaney. Frequently, he would try to jump out it and scare her by hiding around the set in his full werewolf makeup. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty good. Chaney's antics weren't all that anchors had to contend with. During the film's climax, her character was meant to faint and fall to the forest floor. The forest set, which took up the entire Universal soundstage, was pumped full of fog for the movie, 
and the fumes were so dense where Anchors was lying down that she passed out, and no one noticed until the end of the day when the machine was turned off. Oh my god! Oh my god! What did they use for fog then? Like, I just presumed, like, the, the, like, dry ice. Yeah, dry ice is not good to, uh, breathe in either. I mean, liquid nitrogen. Uh, Sure, I guess. Anyways. Another disappointed cast member of this film was Bella Lugosi. Mm. The actor had attempted to convince the studio bosses to let him star as the title monster to no avail. And, you know, Bella, as much as I feel for you, you're 59 years old and your legs aren't good. That's why you're on the morphine. I just don't see him being able to run around and do the physical things the Wolfman needs to be able to do in this movie. Instead, Lugosi was given the small role of Bella the Gypsy, a typically small part for Lugosi outside of his Poverty Row work, uh, though plot essential to the movie. And I, I've never been able to find out if the character's named Bella as a tribute to the actor or if Kurt Seidmack was just lazy that day. Lugosi's sole appearance between making this film and when we last saw him in his very small black cat role was starring in one of Sam Katzman's East Side Kids movies for Monogram Pictures. Is that one of his Monogram 9? Yes. So, The Wolfman cost Universal Studios $180,000, about what Horror Island and Mad Maid Monster had cost put together. Okay. The film was planned for release on Friday... December 12th, 1941. And then on the Sunday before, the United States was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Yep. As is customary for Sarah's role on the podcast, here's some social context about Pearl Harbor. If you're American... You probably know all this. Just fast forward through this section of the the, the podcast. (laughs) So Ben's put us solidly in 1941... But unfortunately, to kind of give a little bit of a whole picture to Pearl Harbor and the road to the United States going to war, I have to kind of back up to 1937. Okay. Japan was struggling economically, and they figured, you know, what's, what's great for uh, doing better economically? Let's take over China's import market. Right. And uh, just for the heck of it, uh, just parts of China in general. So Japan invaded China in 1937, starting with the Sino-Japanese War in July, and then by the fall uh, had turned to Nanjing, China's then capital, and uh, that's also when the Nanjing Massacre happened. The U.S. responded to Japan's invasion, but also specifically the Nanjing Massacre, um, with economic sanctions and trade embargoes on Japan, thinking that, you know, Japan would need to limit if not stop its expansion, without vital resources. The U.S. and Japan had negotiations over this, back and forth, um, but neither side really budging. Tensions were pretty high between the two countries, um, and it was further exacerbated when, in December 1937, the USS Panay was sunk at Nanjing by Japan soldiers. The American boat had been there to try to protect American business interests during the invasion of Nanjing, and Japan claimed that they didn't see the big American flags painted on the side of the boat, so they sunk it, Um, but they did pay, like, 
money to the states as like, sorry, but it 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 exacerbated tension. Yeah, yeah, like you like you. There's do. a reason it's called the Panay Incident. Mm-hmm. In 1939, when Germany invaded Poland, the UK declared war. Japan said that they were neutral in Europe's war. It has nothing to do with them. So now we have the start of World War II. By September 19th, the U.S. had instituted the Selective Service Act for peacetime draft. And uh, later that month, September 27, is when Japan, along with Italy, signed the Tripartite Pact. And part of the reason I think Japan signed it, um, I'm not a historian, but it specifically allowed Japan to expand into Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, it was it was Hitler saying like, I don't really want it, so you can have it. Yeah. In 1941, the U.S. started this Lend-Lease program. And this, uh, its official name was an act to promote defense of the U.S., which is a very selfish way of saying, we're going to distribute food, oil, and military supplies to the U.K. and China. Mm-hmm. Up to this point, the U.S. had been isolationist and therefore neutral on the European war, um, but this act changed that. They might not be actively fighting, but they sure as heck are not neutral. Yeah. To be fair, the non-interventionist, the isolationist type of attitude towards foreign policy had kind of been fading since Dunkirk. Mm. In June, Germany started its Barbarossa plan to invade the USSR, and that resulted in, by the fall, the USSR being added to the Lend-Lease program. So okay. now America is sending, I don't want to say military aid, because that implies soldiers, but military supplies, food, oil, that kind of stuff to the USSR. USSR is real close to Japan, mm-hmm. so Japan's getting a little nervous. Tensions are really rising between the states and Japan. And so it was kind of expected that Japan was going to attack, but the United States figured it would be, you know, their colonies in the Philippines or Guam, you know, places close to Japan. Mm -hmm. So it's, even though it was kind of expected that things were going to happen, it was definitely a surprise when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii on December 7th. The attack on the military base resulted in 20 U.S. ships being crippled, if not destroyed, um, 300 planes destroyed, and the loss of over 2,000 U.S. soldiers, nearly 1,200 people injured. So Japan meant this as a preventative attack to basically keep the U.S. out of Japan's expansion into Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's it's worth saying that Pearl Harbor was the U.S. Navy's main base, and Japan thought that the entire fleet was there, which it was until, like, I think a couple days before they sent the, like, aircraft carriers out on maneuvers, and so basically Japan got everything but, and it was like, oh, oops, because they thought they were just going to cripple the United States in, like, one blow and not have to worry about anything. The Japanese planes also didn't attack, like, the places where oil was being stored and, like, reserves on mm-hmm. the island, they just attacked the base, mm-hmm. so the United States actually bounced back relatively quickly. Yeah. Like, it was still a blow. Not saying an 
otherwise, but they were, you know, they were able to bounce back. Mm-hmm. I will also mention that, like, in addition to attacking Hawaii, the Japanese military attacked U.S.-held Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island, and the U.K.-held Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So, December 8th, Roosevelt gave a speech and declared war on Japan, uh, stating that December 7th would be a day that would live on in infamy, and the states would defend themselves in this form of treachery to never endanger us again. Three days later, Germany and Italy declared war on the states, because that's why treaties exist, and the United States was officially into World War II. With all of this happening, there was some consideration on Universal's part to delay the release of Wolfman. Yeah, because that's like the day after the Axis forces are like, we're coming for you. Um, but ultimately it was decided to press ahead anyway. They just kind of didn't see what the alternative was. They had this movie sitting around, you know. The movie, when it was released, so this would have been, the attack on Pearl Harbor would have been the Sunday. The movie was released on the Friday. Mm-hmm. So you've had, you know... Six days to mull it over, I guess. The film was attacked in the press, with critics declaring the film's horror themes to be in poor taste. Uh, Variety, specifically, said it was, quote, dubious entertainment at this time, unquote. But, despite the film's critical reception, The Wolfman pulled in $1 million at the box office. How much did it cost again? 180000 Woof. Yeah. Uh, it became one of Universal's biggest hits of the year and ensured that Lon Chaney's Wolfman would be one of the studio's great horror icons alongside Karloff's Monster and Lugosi's Dracula. And, in fact, Lon Chaney was always proud of the fact that his monster was the only monster played by the same actor in every movie, because in every Wolfman sequel, it's Lon Chaney Jr. It was a very successful movie. And what that proved was while the critics looked at the movie and saw, oh, you know, this kind of hokey werewolf shit. How can, you, how can you go and enjoy this when, like, there's real horrors happening in the world? That was kind of the critical reaction. The reaction of the average person was, I want to escape for an hour and a half into... A fantasy land. You know, the movie is set in England. Yeah. And it's not like... There's no scene in the movie where Lon Chaney Jr. and Claude Rains have to get into a bunker during an air raid. Like, you just escaped the reality for a little while. And that's what people wanted. Mm-hmm. Hence why it's also, what year is it? Yeah, exactly. Because even when I was looking up what year it's set in to try to like contextualize some of these anti-Romani policies... It was just like, early 20th century. Yep. I guess. So how are we watching this movie? Well, like most of Universal's classic monster output, The Wolfman is available on Blu-ray and DVD, either by itself or in the Wolfman Legacy Collection with all of its various sequels and also Werewolf of London. You can also find it on the PlayStation Video Store, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Alright, I presume people would have to pay money to rent? Yes, that's like a 4 or $5 rental. Okay, cool. So, folks, if you would like to watch along, 
head on over to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can find a YouTube playlist there um, and watch along. Uh, We'll be back after a musical break to discuss The Wolfman from 1941, directed by George Wagner. See you on the other side, everybody. Back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Wolfman from 1941, directed by George Wagner. Ben, what did you think? I really enjoyed this movie. I mean, we've both seen this before, and I know it's a favorite of yours. Yes, it is. Um, and I, I really enjoyed this movie, and I think watching it in the context of seeing it with the other horror movies that were coming out, you know, at the same time has really increased my appreciation for it. Yeah. And having a bit of context around Kurt Seidmack's inspiration for it, I think, really enhanced my appreciation for it as well. Yeah, fair enough. You know, the other thing that rings very loudly is Lon Chaney and, you know, his life and his uh, relationship with his father and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, is also a big part of this movie, I think. I think so, too. Listener, if you haven't watched it, just pause right here and just go watch it. Like, <laughs> I, if it's a problem, if $4 to rent is a problem, like, let me know and we'll figure it out. Like, you need <laughs> to see this movie. So, if you didn't take Sarah's advice, uh, here's what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> so, Lon Chaney plays Lawrence Talbot, uh, who everyone calls Larry. And he's back in England after 18 years in America. He was there for reasons. The movie is set in England, I suspect, because, you know, Sid Mac wanted to use the Romani people as a plot element. Must have thought that the story had to kind of take place in Europe for that to be plausible. And mainland Europe isn't a good scene in December 1941, so we're in England. But we got to explain Lon Chaney's complete lack of a English accent. So he's been in America for 18 years for some reason. And the reason he's back is because his elder brother, John, died in a hunting accident. You see, Larry's father, played by Claude Rains, is Sir John Talbot, and the Talbots are the noble family of the Welsh village of Llanwele. Bless you. Yeah. As Larry has returned to the family estate uh, to begin to learn, you know, what's required in running it and so on, it's worth pointing out that Lon Chaney is like a foot taller than Claude Rains. Yeah, like a full head. And, and also just like double the width. Like, yes. I think you could fit, like, two Claude Rains. Yeah, in a Lon Chaney. So, this is something that ends up not being important to the plot at all, which is rather strange. But Sir John is a amateur astronomer. And he has this big telescope. And 
Larry is something of a mechanic. We get the sense is what he did in America. Like, he was a parts and machinery kind of guy and has done work on telescopes. Uh, and, you know, he's good with his hands. And so he helps fix up his dad's telescope. And I bring this up because although it never comes back in the movie to mean anything, it's actually a remnant of an earlier draft of the script, wherein Larry was not Sir John's son. He was simply an American mechanic that Sir John had brought into the village to fix his telescope. Oh. And that's why it's so weird that Lon Chaney is Claude Rains' son. And this changed because they realized that the ending of the movie would have a lot more weight uh, with that father-son relationship. So Larry meets the daughter of an antique shop owner in town. Her name's Gwen. And when he goes in to meet her, he learns about werewolves from her. It turns out this particular Welsh village has a pretty strong werewolf uh, folklore about it. So the things he learns about werewolves is he learns that the werewolf has the mark of the pentagram, the five-pointed star, on him. He learns that the werewolf sees the pentagram on his victims. He learns that even if a man be true at heart and say his prayers by night, he can become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. <laughs> and... <laughs> So he learns a lot of a lot of this basic werewolf uh, lore from her, and he buys a cane from her that has a silver wolf head. Now, the reason he's here buying a cane from her is because he's asking her out. And she keeps saying no, and he keeps not taking no for an answer. Which is great. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um so a honest, honest. Larry is charming, except for this part. Yeah. <laughs> this it only works because Cheney's kind of likable in sort of a... An a doofus? Yeah, He's an like affable moose. doof kind of way. Yeah. He's like Moose and Archie. Yeah. So a caravan of Roma come into the village, and they are people who come through this village every autumn, and they're known in the village as being fortune tellers. So... Larry decides to take Gwen out to go get her fortune told. And Gwen does, I think, a very reasonable thing for a woman to do in this situation. She brings along her friend Jenny. So they go out to get their fortunes told uh, by Bella, played by, you know, Bella Lugosi. <laughs> and Bella has the mark of the pentagram on him. And when he's telling Jenny her fortune, he sees the mark of the pentagram on her. And, you know, tells her to leave, get away from this place as soon as you can. And so she goes running out into the woods. And next thing you know, Jenny's being attacked by a big wolf. Uh, actually, Lon Chaney's dog playing the <laughs> part. And so Larry overhears the struggle, runs over, and beats that wolf to death with his silver cane. But not before he gets bitten by it. With Gwen's help, he makes it back to Talbot Castle and, you know, passes out. The next morning, the local constabulary finds Jenny dead, seemingly mauled by a wolf. Um, but they also find Bella dead, beaten to death near her with the silver cane left behind by him that's very easily identifiable as being Larry's. 
Now, the constable of this village is Paul Montfort. And I get that they gave Lon Chaney this whole backstory to explain why he has an American accent in this village of British people, but, like, half of this village has American accents. Paul Montfort, who's played by Ralph Bellamy, a rather famous Irish-American actor, has an American accent. Some of the random <laughs> villagers are just American. Like, And, and Montfort's accent is, like, distinctly... Film noir American? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of classic 1940s tough guy voice. I mean, it makes sense. He's the constable. So Larry becomes the constable's sort of top suspect for the murder of Bella, but Larry insists that, no, he killed a wolf. The Roma decide to have a celebration as a funeral uh, for Bella, and the whole town kind of shows up to participate. It's there that Larry talks to an old woman, Maleva, who was Bella's mother, and Maleva explains to Larry that Bella was a werewolf, and now Larry is one too. And she also explains to Larry that a werewolf can only be harmed by something made of silver, whether that's a silver bullet, or a silver dagger, or the silver head of his cane. She gives Larry a pendant to wear to protect him. And Larry kind of immediately gives this pendant to Gwen. We find out that the reason Gwen was so reluctant to say yes to a date with Larry is she's actually engaged to be married to Frank Andrews, who happens to be the groundskeeper of Talbot Castle, and he seems like a decent enough fellow. So that's kind of what was going on there. Now, Larry is increasingly convinced that Maleva was right and that he is a werewolf, Because, you know, he transforms at night (laughs) and kills villagers. Uh, One. He kills one. Yes. But there are attacks happening and so on. And yes, so with the bodies sort of starting to pile up, he's getting more and more convinced about it. Uh, In one case, they've set out bear traps. And Larry, in his wolfman form, gets caught in one and has to be rescued by Maleva. And, you know, this is just getting to be a lot for for old Larry Talbot, especially because he doesn't remember what he does as the Wolfman. So he blacks out, something terrible happens, he wakes up, you know, is sure he did it, but who knows. It's, it's, I mean, you know, if you've read an Incredible Hulk comic, you know what's going on here. (laughs) And he goes to Gwen and tries to get her to help him. And she decides that she's going to just run away with him and they'll get out of here, which feels a little out of nowhere, but it ends up kind of not mattering. The key point of the scene where he goes to Gwen, though, is he sees the pentagram on her and knows that she will be his next victim. Now, the police are still mostly convinced that they're dealing with a wolf because the bodies that they find are are mauled and there's wolf tracks all about. But um, Sir John and his friend, Dr. Lloyd, played by Warren William, are coming to believe that Larry is suffering from lycanthropy, that is, the psychological disorder of lycanthropy, that Larry believes he is becoming a wolf in his mind, and that this is some some really serious psychological harm that's been done to him, and he needs, you know, some treatment. The thing is, Dr. Lloyd and Sir John sort of disagree on what course that treatment should take. Dr. Lloyd wants, you know, Larry to go away to a psychiatric facility and so on, And Sir John kind of just wants him to stiff upper lip it and, you know, pull through like a good Englishman. For the name of the family. 
Yes. One night, Sir John decides to prove to Larry that his werewolfery is all in his head and ties him up at the castle so that he can't go out in the night uh, and hopes that he'll just, you know, see that, hey, you don't turn into a wolf. Sir John then is going to leave Larry there so that he can go on the hunt for the wolf that everyone's chasing with everybody else in the village. And Larry, worried about his dad, insists that his dad take the silver cane. Of course, Larry does transform, and of course he does break out, and of course he does track down and attack Gwen. And Sir John sees this and ends up having to fight Larry and ends up having to kill Larry with the cane. Larry transforms back into human form after his death. Everyone gathers around and sees that he's died, and his death gets ruled as the wolf killed him while he was trying to protect Gwen is kind of the the thing they're going to say, I guess. And then the movie ends. The end. Yeah. It's definitely a tragedy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, the the character of Frank Andrews, the the fiance to Gwen literally only exists as far as I'm concerned because Larry dies at the end. Yeah. So that, you know, there's someone to reassure Gwen and we know she's going to be okay cuz she's with this guy. Otherwise, he does nothing in the story. Why would you have him, right? And, you know, Larry has to die at the end. Yeah. Yeah, this movie's really good, Sarah. It's firing on all cylinders. It believes in its own content. You know, it's committed to what it is. It knows it's a horror movie. It's not going around with any bullshit tepidness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's one character who clearly was meant to be the comic relief character, And he kind of is in, like, one scene, and then they just sort of forget about him as the movie goes on. Yeah, he's in the scene when they discover Jenny's body, which is, like, the, maybe the first kind of more grisly part of Mm -hmm. the movie. Um, And then, yeah, he just kind of, like, shuffled off, and it's great. Yeah, it has a conviction about itself that a lot of these other films that we've been seeing lately haven't had. Speaking of conviction, Lon Chaney Jr. is so believable as... Larry Talbot. Well, it's because the role plays to his strengths, right? He's an affable doof, but he's tragic. And Lon Chaney plays out of his depth and afraid. And desperate. And desperate very, very well. Yeah. You know, that's what he's really good at. The, The thing is, is you really believe that he's just an average guy who's been thrust into a situation way beyond his abilities to deal with. And he has no idea who to turn to and where to go and what to do. He's just kind of in panic mode the whole time. Yeah, he does a really good job. Now, he doesn't do a super great job at anything else, but he does a great job here in this movie. Yeah, yeah. There are roles that he is good at. You have to write the role for him. Yes. You know, there there are certain parts that he's not meant for. Uh, but we haven't gotten to those movies yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I shouldn't even bring you in it. Right. So, yeah, uh, worth saying just for the, the werewolf lore stuff that, uh, you know, he transforms at the autumn moon, not the full moon. But we do get the first idea of silver and silver bullets mm-hmm. as being a anti-werewolf thing. Even though the movie actually doesn't have a silver bullet in it. People keep bringing them up, yeah. but nobody uses one. It's just the silver cane. And um, it also brings in Wolfsbane. Yes. Um, which Jenny sees a bush of Wolfsbane and picks some as if it's not 
poisonous. Yeah. That's why it's called wolf spin. You use it to poison wolves in the traps. Yeah, it's 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 funny how like these plants get, you know, it's like it's like the Roma themselves, right? They become a trope of the genre and get very divorced from their real world counterparts, mm-hmm. right? But what's interesting here is that nobody uses the wolfbane to ward off the werewolf. It's there in the poem, you know, he comes out when the wolfbane blooms. And it's just because there's a, like, wolf in the name. And my favorite thing about this poem is that every single person in this village can recite this poem at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Uh, from memory. <laughs> like, as if they learned it in grade school. The one other thing about the wolf Spain is, yeah, it's not used to fight the werewolf or anything like that. Jenny brings it when she meets Bella, and Bella, like, when he starts That's to feel right. like he's turning, he, like, slaps it away like Dracula with the mirror, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's just like a dislike. Like, get that away from me. I don't like that. Bella's got, like, two minutes of screen time in this, because the thing is, what's a little weird about the movie, you know, Sarah went to such lengths in the intro to explain that, like, the traditional werewolf doesn't have a hybrid form. Mm-hmm. It just turns into a wolf. Now, Lon Chaney has a hybrid form. The Wolfman, if you've never seen the movie, he walks on two feet, he's wearing clothes. And he tiptoes. Well, what they're trying to do is give him that, like, wolf hind leg kind of Yeah, I just really appreciate it. And when he's walking through, I always just imagine, like, violin plucking. Sure, sure. I I just love it. But, you know, he wears clothes. He's bipedal. Hey, me too. On the, on the scale, you know, of movie werewolves, if that scale is a slider from were to wolf, <laughs> you know, he's, he's closer to the were side, right? And what's interesting about that is Bella isn't. Mm-hmm. Like, Bella just turns into a wolf, or a dog, really, uh, when he transforms. So we never get to see Bella in, like, any kind of cool makeup getup, right? We just see him in the one fortune-telling scene. He's got very little screen time, but he does manage to leave quite an impact on you. Yeah, in my memory of this movie, I thought he was in more of it. Another person who's great in this is the actress who plays Maleva. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a Russian actress. Her first name's Maria. I, I can't, I don't want to butcher the last name. Like, I can't do it justice. Um, but she's really good in this movie. And she's a big part of this movie feeling like it's really... Like, selling its shit, you know what I mean? Like, sure. Like, giving itself authenticity. Um, the the Roma people in this movie are not, like, uh, Romanichal, like, English Roma people. They're very distinctly Eastern, meant to be Eastern European, right? Like, Bella's wearing, like, a traditional, you know, Hungarian or Romanian, like, peasant shirt, mm-hmm. right? And stuff like that. And um, so having, you know, Bella Lugosi and having this Russian actress... It gives a lot of authenticity to their dialogue, you know, because they, they, at least to a Western audience, they kind of look right and sound right, you know? The other thing that gives the authenticity is just that Sidemac writes everything so confidently. It's so excellently written. The dialogue is so wonderful. It's no wonder that the mythology of the werewolf kind of gets set in stone here, because this movie just very confidently lays it out as if this is how it has always been. Well, it starts with a book yeah, someone... opening to the definition of lycanthropy and this incident that happened in this village. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's very, very good lore 
because it has that authentic feel. I will say that uh, Sid Mac seems a bit too pleased with himself, given how many times certain passages of dialogue are repeated. <laughs> there's the the poem, sure, but there's also this prayer that Maleva says over Bella's body when he dies, and then she says it uh, when Larry dies, but she also says it a third time when she rescues him from the bear trap. It actually, oddly enough, seems to have the power to turn him back to human, and it's this thing about... Temporarily. Yeah. It's this thing about, you know, the path you walk is thorny. Um, Through no fault of your own. That's right. It's, it's, it's also pretty good, but it gets said a few times. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for pointing out the actress, because she... You really believe that she's lost her son. Yeah, she really plays it with, like, the full emotion and the pathos of the situation that she's in and now feeling like she kind of has a responsibility to look after this guy whose life has been ruined by the actions of her son. And I really appreciate when she shows up when Sir John is wandering through the forest right before the climax, and she's basically mocking him for leaving his son alone and not having, like the wherewithal or conviction to, like, believe or stand by his son. She has a a really interesting quality of... She's the one who really knows what's going on, Mm -hmm. so she can kind of mock the people who mock her, right? Because that's the thing, right? For Sir John and for the people in the village, like, this is all just gypsy superstition. And, you know, they can kind of mock them and kind of laugh at them. I think it very quietly says a lot that the villagers are super concerned about this wolf that killed Jenny and killed the other villager, the the town gravedigger who dies. And but even though the cops are like pretty sure that Larry killed Bella, they don't really care. Like Sir John's just like, "No, he didn't. Drop it." And they're like, "Okay." And it just is Bella's death becomes an unfortunate accident, right? Yeah. And I think there's something to the way she portrays kind of getting to mock Sir John specifically is is really good. It's a really good moment in the movie. Speaking of Sir John, mm. I want to talk about him for a little bit. Yeah, for sure. He's a really interesting character, not just because Claude Rains plays him very well. But he does. Yeah, he does. Because at the beginning of the movie, he is talking about, like, some scientific stuff and, like, you know, all astronomers are amateurs and and things. And and he shows that he really believes in the power of science. Mm. And the thing about science is you have that step-by-step procedure to prove something, right? Right. Yes, 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 yes. There's, like, the the observation. method, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the word. Scientific method. And yet he has this... I forget when it comes into the movie. I don't think Cheney has transformed yet, but he has this interesting comment about grayness versus black and white. Yeah, yeah, that that morality, that there are people for whom morality is black and white and everything's simple, and there are other people who see the gray in things, and the more you look at things, the more complicated and complex morality becomes. Yeah, and he's saying this in regards to people believing in the werewolf mm-hmm. myth. And he's like, some people believe in simple things. Yeah. You know, um, and then kind of like holds himself higher than that because I see the gray in things. Mm-hmm. And I think Sir John is... Villain is a strong word. Hmm. But I think he's supposed to be a little bit of a antagonist to 
Larry. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think villain is m- much too strong a word, but I do agree that he's the antagonist in many ways, uh, even if not plot-wise, certainly for Larry's um, character arc. There's clearly a disconnect going on between them, and it's really underplayed because Larry is clearly very like respectful of his father, and he's such a nice guy, and he's just kind of willing to go along with whatever people want of him, but it's really clear that like he's not suited for being, you know, the Lord of Talbot Castle. Like his personality is just so different from the way that Claude Rains plays Sir John that it's just kind of boggling. I really wish the script had an explanation for why Larry was in America for 18 years because your brain fills in the gap that there was some sort of like falling out maybe. No, there is. Like they have dialogue about it. When he first comes back, Sir John is trying to basically be like, you know, water under the bridge. I know we've been estranged. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the older son has to hold up the mantle. The younger son feels resentful, so he leaves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. he's talking about that being like a pattern in the family. And I did pick that up, but I, I really would have been interested in hearing, you know, what was the specific incident, right? Mm-hmm. The the father-son relationship in this movie is fascinating almost because it's so loosely sketched out. Yeah. You're kind of reading between the lines a lot of the time. That's kind of how it is when you're introduced to other families, too. <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. You, you understand that something's happened, but no one's really wanting to address it or talk mm-hmm. explicitly about it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, with Sir John, like, he... He's so dismissive of Larry's paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, it's just all in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, doesn't believe him, despite Larry's, like, clear desperation. Um, he disagrees with his doctor because, like, the family name what, is, like, what he holds above everything else. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is he's not malicious mm-hmm. though is the thing like he has this very unique attitude that that is a very specific flavor of like it's it feels so authentically like british upper class the word i i guess i'm sort of thinking of is it really feels very uniquely patriarchal in a certain sense because he wants to help larry and he wants larry to get better and he he sort of admits that there's something wrong with larry um, and he wants what's best for his son, and he wants, you know, his son to do well, and he wants the village to do well, and all this kind of stuff. Like, he's he's a good guy, but he has this very specific way of going about it, and it's that very, you know, Rudyard Kipling, stiff upper lip way of doing it, right? Like, he's not going to go off to see doctors. Instead, we're just going to shock therapy him into standing up like a man and facing his fear head-on kind of thing. And, you know, it's it's this very specific kind of the parent who is harsh to the kid because it'll give him character kind of guy. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, you see Larry, and for him it is black and white. There's no gray. There's no, like, complexity to the fact that he's turning into a werewolf. Yeah, he's turning into a wolf and killing people. Like, end of story. Yeah. And he's just begging to be, be believed and to be helped. And that's part of the tragedy, and I think that's also why... The fact that they have this father-son relationship makes the ending so powerful because mm-hmm. it's his dad who kills him. Yeah. And the 
way the film is edited and shot, like, it, you're supposed to be feeling every single hit from Sir John onto his son. They do such a clever thing with this movie with the violence of having it all take place, you know, in the forest at the outskirts of the village, and it's this set that's all these big, gnarly trees and this eternal fog on the floor that lets them obscure violence behind things but still give it full power as opposed to you know they don't cut away when sir john beats larry to death it's on screen but there's like a tree branch in the way and some fog so you don't see the impact you know what i mean like yeah. it's very clever yeah it's very well done and i i also just think about his about sir john's stance on morality and Kurt C. and Max take on this film being, like, bringing in the Nazi ideology turns you into a monster Mm -hmm. without you realizing it, and your control over that being taken out of your hands, your loss of control. Like, obviously, when it's like you're turning into a monster, it's the fear of your own loss of control that is terrifying. Mm -hmm. But I think in the case of Sir John, it's... Kurt Seed Matt kind of pointing a finger to the people who were just trying to appease Hitler. Yeah. Like, things aren't complex. It's black and white. Stop him. That's a really good point. I never would have thought about that, but I think you really are on to something there because the thing about Sir John is, you know, and this is kind of what I was trying to say earlier, he's very reasonable. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't dismiss when Larry is saying, you know, I'm turning into a wolf. He just believes... Okay, so you you believe that in your head, right? He does, he's not willing to t- go with Larry all the way to you are literally transforming, but he's not as dismissive as Paul Montfort, who's just like, ah, that's stupid. I'm going to go catch a wolf, mm-hmm. right? He, he, he himself occupies that gray area. And if you have, I think, comparing him to, you know, your Neville Chamberlain kind of types as an appeaser, because the appeasement team everyone was behind them that was a very reasonable opinion to have in 1938 like everyone thought that was the way to go right was just to find a peaceful solution you know to things the thing about gray in morality is there's a you know if you have a black and white view of morality if there's a clear good and a clear evil and that's the way you see it then any kind of gray might as well be black because you've let a little bit of that evil in. And once you've let a little bit of it in, you might as well have let the whole thing in, right? And that was the thing about appeasing Hitler. It was like, okay, so you got peace in your time, but like Czechoslovakia is under the control of Nazi Germany. Like what the, what victory was that really? You're just giving in to evil under the guise of staying good. Yeah, I think, I don't know if the movie really goes into this, but I I think that, like, I guess I just feel like I need to say for the record that, like, both views of morality can be destructive. Mm -hmm. Everything's complex. But I I, I just identify that this is something that the movie's invoking. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like, black and white morality can lead you to very dark paths. Like, even Nazism in itself is very black and white. Yes, because it leads you very easily to an us-versus-them mentality and takes away your ability to feel empathy for people and, you know, keep in mind their own 
lives and situations and, and all of this kind of stuff. It, it sort of takes away your ability to see other people as um, human. human beings, right? And it, it, it's, you see, and you can see black and white morality come from anyone, regardless of their beliefs. You know, there's the, what they call the, the purity movement, uh, not in Christianity on Tumblr is actually what I'm talking about, <laughs> where, you know, like the second someone's done anything wrong, they are cast out forever kind of thing. That's a very black and white morality. But on the other hand, the problem with having a very shades of gray, everything's more complex than it seems. Let's look at this from every point of view kind of view of the world is that can lead you to start making excuses and being complacent and, and being complicit in evil because well you know it's okay that they did that because of these reasons right and that sucks too yeah yeah let's talk about nazis so <laughs> i didn't bring this up during the intro because i i didn't really know how to address it mm-hmm. but you know, in looking at the werewolf as... It's funny, because I've never watched this movie thinking of the werewolf as a metaphor for Nazi Germany before. I've always, because I knew more about Lon Chaney than I did about Kurt Siedmack, um, I always saw this story as reflecting Chaney's own tragedies. Not only his strained relationship with his father and living up to that name and legacy, but also his struggles with alcoholism, which is certainly a disease where you can, you know, pass out and then wake up and have no idea what you did in the night and feel horrible remorse because you're not yourself when it takes over, right? I've always seen this movie through that lens. That's, mm -hmm. for me, the traditional lens. Watching it this time through this lens of the wolf as a Nazi allegory, I have to bring up the fact of the pentagram. So pentagrams have nothing to do with werewolves, before this movie anyways. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things that is, again, Seed Mac inventing folklore. And it's an interesting thing because the pentagram is the sign of the werewolf. It appears on the wolf as a scar, but it also appears on the wolf's victims. The wolf kills people marked with a star. Well, gosh, if the wolf's a Nazi allegory, we don't really have to, like, dig too deep to figure out what that means, right? Yeah. And the reason I was sort of reluctant to address this in the intro is the relationship between the pentagram and the Star of David in terms of imagery is really complicated and fraught and kind of goes back and forth over time uh, and is kind of this self-feeding loop of anti-Semitism feeding into other, you know, occult beliefs and then back out again in the same way that pointed hats are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to just briefly give a very simplistic overview of this relationship okay. between the two symbols. So the sort of true origin of this symbol is something called the Seal of Solomon. It's a six-pointed star like the Star of David, and it's a sort of a ward or a talisman that you can put on things. Um, Solomon would mark demons with this seal, and then he could control them. That's a, it's an apocrypha thing. It's not, it's, you're not going to find it in your Bible. They did a whole episode of Apocrypals on it. Go and watch <laughs> Apocrypals. Uh, you'll learn more about it there. In medieval Europe, a lot of Jewish occult beliefs became conflated with what European Christians saw as, like, witchcraft. Mm -hmm. um, the first mention of the Seal of Solomon in a Christian source comes from the story Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And in that story, that's the first time we see it become a five-pointed star instead of six. But it's still called the Seal of Solomon. 
And in fact, it's a good thing. In the Christian interpretation, the five points represent the five wounds of Christ. Um, mm. The five points where he was his wounded. His hands, his head. Right. Because the pentagram at this point, we're still understanding it as having one point at the top, two points at the bottom. Where it started to become like a witchy, occult, evil, satanic symbol is when it got flipped upside down, which is a very like common trope, right? You take the good symbol, you flip it upside down, now it's evil. Yeah. Um, so that's where you see the pentagram with the two points on top. That's why that's the witchy, satanic version. And these things feed off each other because you start with a Jewish symbol, you turn it into a Christian occult symbol. Now it's more associated in the minds of the average person with, you know, evil and satanic ritual and witches and stuff. And then they see something like the Star of David with um, Jewish people, and that gets conflated in their minds. So it's, you know, the same thing with the pointed hat, where you start with a thing that was Jewish, then became like a stereotype of like witches. And then because no one likes witches, got rebounded back into a negative thing upon Jews, right? So that's just my short digression about the pentagram and the Star of David. This movie shows the pentagram in the um, one point on top version, as opposed to the occult evil version that I think people would expect in a horror movie. And because it does that, that's part of what makes me suspect that its relationship to the Star of David is not coincidental. Mm-hmm. Especially with everything else that Kutzee and Mac is doing. Yes. So yeah, uh, this is a great looking movie. Uh, it's wonderfully directed. Uh, the camera's always moving. The film's always going places. Um, it's always doing things. I can't believe it was done so inexpensively. Mm -hmm. Like, it looks great. Especially that set with all the fog. Yeah. The suspense and the pacing are top notch. This is a movie that sort of keeps you going, and it never slows down or lets up when it doesn't need to. The pacing choices in this movie are deliberate choices of when to pace fast or slow. They never feel like we're just sitting around wasting time. We never have a scene where we have to listen to Paul Montfort and Frank Andrews talk about their new watches and the latest sports game just because we need to kill 10 minutes somehow, right? This movie starts and just keeps going until it ends. It's very um, superbly plotted, Mm -hmm. in my mind, because everything is important, and everything fits into the story. There's nothing really extraneous here. Um, uh, an element of the story that I didn't mention in the plot summary, but is still important to the mood of this film, is after people start dying in the village, the mood in the village becomes very paranoid. Um, the villagers are convinced that Larry Talbot is killing everyone, even if the police think it's a, a wolf, and people are just pointing the finger at people, um, there's a really interesting scene where the whole village goes to church Sunday morning and, you know, everybody's whispering about Larry Talbot and he shows up with his dad and they walk in and he can't walk in and sit down. He gets to the pews and everyone turns to look at him because he's the only one who hasn't sat down yet and he just can't take everyone looking at him and he just leaves. It's a very interesting scene. Yeah, I mean, at that point he... He's been bitten. He's a werewolf. Yeah, and um, and you can hand wave that scene away with, oh, he's been cursed. He feels uncomfortable in a Christian church. Yeah. But the way it's shot, the moving of the camera up the aisle, us seeing everyone kind of turn and look, and the last person to do so is his dad. 
having yeah. a confused, like, what are you doing? Yeah, you, you really get that feeling of, you know, all of the expectations that are on him that he's not really prepared to deal with in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's just, it's a really strong movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one last comment, and then I think we can go over to ranking. Sure. The makeup sucks, and I hate it. You don't like his little furry fro? So, here's my problem with the makeup. I get where it's coming from, right? Like, he's a wolf man, so they don't try to make him look like a wolf, like your American werewolf in London kind of look. He's bipedal, he's half and half. I just think that Jack Pierce doesn't pull it off. When I say the makeup sucks, I don't mean it's like unconvincing or cheap or cheesy looking. I just don't think it looks like a wolf. (laughs) He's got kind of wolfy feet, I'll give him that. But the way the design is where he's got the fur all around his face and the fangs and like the like snout nose, he looks more were-boar than werewolf to me. He looks like he should be inviting Belle into his castle in France. (laughs) The other thing that's bizarre about it, and again, I get why this is a thing, because it's way easier to do only makeup on the face and hands, but this wolf man with his fully buttoned up shirt is so weird because, you know, especially from a modern sensibility, every time you see a werewolf in a movie, like their clothes rip and stuff as they transform. And the first time Larry transforms, he's wearing like an undershirt and light colored pants from the suit he'd been wearing earlier in the film. And we see him transform wearing those clothes. Uh, we only see his feet. We cut to him out and about, and he's in a fully buttoned up black dress shirt and black pants with a white belt, like a totally different outfit. And I just, I just imagine in my head, like full form Wolfman, like going through Larry Talbot's closet and like <laughs> picking out these clothes and like putting them on. And I get that it's so that they don't have to, you know, apply any makeup to his chest or whatever, but it just, it doesn't quite work. And we talked about how good Chaney is as Larry Talbot. He's not great as the Wolfman. Like, he doesn't quite... He's just kind of walking around with his hands out in front of him, going... And he's a little... It's he's a, trying to do a little bit of, of, like, dog reaction type things when he's looking around. He just doesn't know what to do with his hands is yeah. the thing. I mean, to be fair, I don't know what to do with my hands best of times. Um, yeah, it's just the least effective aspect of the movie for me. It's <laughs> like the central monster. It's a very iconic design. I get it. But, like, it's not my preferred werewolf. Is there something in the code that's about, like, showing a guy shirtless or anything like that? Because, like, even when he's showing people the scar and Mm -hmm. it's on his chest, he unbuttons part of his shirt, but we never get to see any of it. And even when he's, like, taking off his clothes, he still has that undershirt on. Yeah, I feel like... I don't know if that, that was something specific, but I know there was provisions against, like, general undressing. And I feel like it was one of those things, because the, the code doesn't gender that particular provision. Um, so I feel like it was obviously meant to not have scantily clad women, but, like, you kind of have to apply it, I guess, both ways. But, you know, like, um, there was a real scandal in 1934 when Clark Gable takes off his shirt in um, It Happened One Night. And, and he's not wearing an undershirt. Yeah, that was, like, a huge scandal right. uh, at the time. I had forgotten about that. You know, I'm sure that the Universal Monsters design for the Wolfman is somebody's favorite out there, and that's that's totally fine, but it just just doesn't work for me, and I just had to get that off my chest. Yeah, that's fair. Um, what do you, what do you think? Do you, like, do you like 
the design? His, his, like, you know, like, the hair on top of your head? Yeah. Part of the design? It, it, it doesn't quite look right. Like, I don't know if they were going for, like, a mane or something, but it doesn't look unruly enough. It looks like he just got, like, a nice trim. Yeah, he looks like... Like a chia pet. He looks like after putting on his nice shirt and getting it all buttoned up, he, you know, pulled out one of those, like, 1950s greaser um, combs and stood in front of, like, a mirror for, like, half an hour, like, combing his hair back and getting it all nice and set and perfect, you know? Yeah, it needs to be a bit more unruly. I disagree about, like, his face. I think that is fine. Um, I want him... When we're when we see his, just his feet when he transforms, yeah. Um, I want more body hair. Like he starts with like a significant amount, but there needs to be more and it needs to be scraglier. Or it needs because like compared the legs and feet mm-hmm. compared to the way his face and hands look when he's fully transformed, right? Like it doesn't match. Versus you think American Werewolf in London. Where he has, like, sparse fur. Yeah. Like, he, like he's a, a werewolf with mange. Yeah. Like, choose choose one or the other. I feel like the reason the feet don't have fur is because he's walking outside in the mud and they don't want to have to clean the hair every time. I feel like that's probably what's going on. <laughs> but, like, I think the design would work for me if his little, like, upturned snout nose actually came out from his face into a snout. They probably that would didn't be... know how to make him, like, be able to emote. That's a good point, yeah. It's it's 1941. You're yeah. doing the best you can. Yeah. Like, Planet of the Apes hasn't happened yet. They don't know how to do snouts and have people emote. Sure. <laughs> I think, I, I just have, like, one last thing to point out, and I think it works really great to transition into ranking. hmm Because I think, obviously, this, like, I started off this whole discussion by saying this is a tragedy. Like, it's 100% a tragedy. It's 100% a horror movie. And I, I was wondering... We, we already have a, a, an episode titled Horror and Tragedy. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. Um, why do those two genres, or even just, like, emotions, go so well together? Well, I think I have two explanations. There's sort of one that's highfalutin and one that's pragmatic. Sure. Because the highfalutin one would be like, in both genres, bad things happen to people, right? Both tragedy and horror are defined as, you know, bad things happen to people. And I think that's why they go hand in hand very well, because if you want the bad things in your horror movie to have depth and have weight to them, that moves you into that tragedy category, because now you are lingering on the bad things more as opposed to just taking them for cheap thrills. Yeah. So there's a spectrum there. Like the, there's almost, you know, people talk about Shakespeare's comedies. People talk about Shakespeare's tragedies, right? The symbol of drama is the cryy mask and the smiley mask. And I feel like we've talked on this show about the spectrum of comedy to horror. And I think there's also a spectrum that's horror to tragedy. Ergo, the midpoint of comedy and tragedy is horror. <laughs> I think there is an argument to be made there when you think about how Horror Island does not give any weight to death. Mm-hmm. And, like, really good horror gives weight to the death, and tragedy is like, that's the whole point, is the death. There's, there's a pacing difference there where 
you know how like occasionally you can be watching like a a really violent horror movie from like the eighties, like a slasher or something, and somebody dies and you laugh yeah. because their death is like so ridiculous. Yeah, it's because it can have the same pacing as like a slapstick gag in a physical comedy film, right? And I feel like what edges you over into tragedy is slowing down your pacing. Having moments to reflect or show... Like, I I think, like, your comment about this film's pacing is really on point, and a key scene is the church, but I think also... It was after the church scene. His dad, the doctor, and the constable are all talking, like, do you really think there's a werewolf? And, like, someone's, like, making fun of it, and just having, like... A moment where people are talking about like the plot of the movie in a way that's not just like rehashing what we already know. Like, mm-hmm. I yeah, I think you're. I'm agreeing with you. Yes, the other. Uh, so I wanted to say that there's a pragmatic reason. Yeah, and we've talked about that on the show before too, which is the pragmatic reason is that it gives you a good work around the moral necessities of the code. Yeah, because. If you make your hero the monster at the same time, it solves the central horror dilemma, which is you can't be murdering off good people willy-nilly, so only bad people can die or something, and that becomes very boring very quickly, and where's your horror? Well, if the hero is the monster, the horror is not the violence that the monster does, the horror is the transformation. And so you don't have to be so focused on the attacks and the violence, which you can't show. They're, they're very muted. But obviously, if he's the monster, he has to die at the end, which then, if your hero dies at the end of your show, that's a tragedy, folks. You just wrote a tragedy. So it, they become linked for a very pragmatic reason, I think, in that way. Yeah, I think those are great points. In the case of the Wolfman, what it is that you're supposed to be scared of? Because we ask this of all of our movies. Mm-hmm. What are we actually supposed to be scared of? And I think, like, same as with Man Made Monster, it's your will being taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, doing something against your will. And in a very Caligari kind of way, in this film, it's also not being believed. Yes, I was, yes, absolutely. Like, that's almost the central difference between this and Man Made Monster is... Everybody knows what happened to Chaney and Mad Made Monster, right? Whereas here he's having to convince people and they don't believe him. And, you know, I'm sh- you know, there's scenes in this movie where he isn't sure if maybe he's crazy, right? Like, that's what everyone's telling him. Maybe they're right. And that's kind of a fear for him. But there's certainly a nightmarish quality to the idea of going around to people and saying, hey, th- look at this thing, and no one seemingly able to see it, right? That's a very nightmarish feeling, and that's sort of the world he's stuck in here, where he's saying, no, I'm a werewolf, and people are like, yes, dear, of course you are, right? Yeah. So let's talk about ranking. Sure. I have a really large range for this one, Sarah. I have a very small range. Okay. So let's start with yours. My range, my, my floor, is number 20, so I thought this definitely could go above The Man Who Changed His Mind. But, you know, I looked at films like Vampire and Cat in the Canary and, you know, his dad's big movie, Phantom of the Opera, and, you know, Walking Dead and Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And those are all, like, really strong, iconic movies that really are, like, a lot of them are really creepy and really spooky and have a lot of power to them. You know, up at this part of the list, 
these battles are a bit more knockout, you know, nasty fights, right, between these movies. The highest I got as I worked my way up is, you know, I thought to myself, I would think this is superior to the original Dracula and Frankenstein, in a manner of speaking. Like, that's the problem I had with ranking this movie, is in some ways these other movies are superior to it, and in some ways it's superior. And I think what this movie's superior at is being exciting and having a plot structure that flows naturally from one point to the other. And I think what is in its favor versus Dracula and Frankenstein with that is that it's not an adaptation. You know, it's not a novel that got adapted into a play that got adapted into a movie, so you don't have all these loose ends and weird vestigial elements from hanging around from these previous adaptations. Kurt Siedmack just gets to tell a story, and he does it very well. So there's that part of it. And as I made my way up the list, I even thought, you know, Son of Frankenstein's very grisly, and it's very dark, and it has a lot of great visuals, but it it, it has some problems, plot-wise. Like, a lot of that movie's really running around in circles. They're, like, how many scenes are just Basil Rathbone talking to Lionel Atwill about, like, uh, oh, what are they, we going to do about this monster? Like, it just kind of goes in circles a few too many times. This movie doesn't do that. This movie never wastes your time. And so the highest I could go with this movie is number seven, above Son of Frankenstein, below The Invisible Man. Because after that, you go above that, you start to have movies that have a lot of real teeth to them. That, you know, this movie is great for a Cody or a horror film, but it still doesn't have anything in it, you know, on the level of The Black Cat or Island of Lost Souls, right? That's kind of as high as I'm willing to go. I'm not saying it goes there. Like, you can definitely talk me down. That's why that's my range. You yeah. know what I mean? But, yeah, so 7 to 20 is kind of where I'm looking. Okay. Well, the good news is that my smaller range is right in yours. Okay, cool. So I first was thinking about Caligari. Okay, yeah, I can see how you went there. Yeah. And, you know, think about Caligari... From 1920, so, like, over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then think of Wolfman, and you're just like... How far have we come? Yeah. But in terms of what they're talking about... And also, it's funny to think, they're both talking a little bit about Nazis. Right, in the weird, forward-looking, you know, divination way that Caligari somehow does it. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said about how well they can compare in terms of theme. We've come a long way from the Prime Minister's exploding cake. <laughs> now, above Caligari is Fairman Maria. Yeah. And I don't know if I feel comfortable putting Wolfman, who I'm, 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 I really love, and seeing the themes that Sidemack put in here about Nazi Germany, there it's done well, and I think he has something to say. But the horror movie coming out of Nazi Germany, and if they had made it, like, a few months later, they all would have been shot. Yeah, yeah. The the balls of, like... Because this movie buries its Nazi allegory very deep. To the point where, like, hey, I've seen this movie a lot, and I didn't know about that allegory till we watched it this time, right? Fairman Maria is explicit. Yeah, like, you can't walk out of that and not realize what that movie's talking about. And, you know, that's a movie where the villain is an SS officer, basically. And... Death personified as an SS officer. Yeah. And that movie was, you know, 
made in Germany by Germans, under Germans for Germans. So I don't feel comfortable putting Wolfman above Fairman Maria. That movie's got a bit more balls. Yes. <laughs> so that's where you're kind of looking, is between those two. My ceiling is quite above where you were looking. I dared to go quite high. But I, I, I think I agree with your argument about Fairman Maria, that, you know, I mean, no shade on Kurt C. at Mac, but, like, you know, Frank Vispar, that's... He that's impressive. It's an impressive film. This versus Caligari, it's so hard to compare because even if Caligari like wasn't expressionist and unlike any other movie ever made other than Genuina, like you said, there's 21 years of difference here. It it's like so hard to fathom, you know, the difference that you're that you're looking at. But I would be fine with putting this above Caligari and below Fairman Maria. And the reason why I say above Caligari is, you know, while Caligari is iconic and we wouldn't have the much beloved and merchandise selling aesthetic of Tim Burton without it, um, <laughs> there's something about Caligari that puts you at arm's length. Some of it's the expressionist style, right? Maybe the type of acting. The type of acting as well. But there's also the feeling that Caligari's a little pretentious. Because <laughs> it's, cause it's, it's, it's trying it's to be... It's so artful. Yes, it's trying to be an art movie and a popular movie at the same time. It succeeded at doing that. But it puts you a little at arm's length and it's a little bit too, con you know, too concerned with trying to be clever. We talked about how the twist ending in it, you know, in our episode on it, doesn't quite really make sense, right? Like, it, it's, it doesn't, like, you, you're sitting there and you're, after the twist ending, you're kind of going, wait, so if that's what the truth is, then what the point, what was the point of any of this, right? In Wolfman, you have very confident storytelling there where everything is important to the story and you are sucked into the world of the movie. Like, we talked about this. To me, the most impressive thing in this movie is that Larry Talbot's written as being kind of a creep and you still like him because Lon yeah. Chaney is likable, right? It's that back to the future effect where those characters on paper are the worst people, but because the actors are charming, you like them. And the, the movie just kind of sucks you into its world, I think, more effectively. And the thing that I keep coming back to with Wolfman is you walk out of that movie totally believing that's what werewolf legends are. Mm -hmm. That's totally what you just, no matter what you knew going in, you walk out going, yep, that's what werewolves are. That's how werewolves do. Like, you believe that. And you never quite believe Caligari, because Caligari kind of up front tells you that it's artificial. Yeah. Cool. All right. So entering the list at number 13, ooh, <laughs> The Wolfman from 1941 Directed by George Wagner. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find links to the other episodes. If you want to re-listen to our Caligari episode, or even just Fairman Maria. Werewolf of London. Or that, you know. Or if, if you feel like just, like, poking your eyes out, you could watch Wolf Blood. I mean, the episode's only, like, half an hour, so, yeah. you know, it's not a, not a big... Time commitment. Yeah. Um, 
you can find those links on our, on the website on the list. If you would like to appeal any of these rankings, including this one, you can drop us a line on our website on our ask box, or you can send us an email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. By leaving us a rating or a review on whatever service you listen to the show on, it really helps us out because it helps the show be promoted through those algorithms to other people. However, a more direct way that you can do the same thing is by recommending the show to other people, whether that's on social media or whether that's in real life. If you know anyone who you think would like the show, let them know about it, because word of mouth is the most effective form of advertising. A more fiduciary way that you can support us is by heading to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. One dollar a month helps us pay for hosting costs. It helps us put money aside for a better microphone. Um, It really just is very appreciated. And at the one dollar level, you will be thanked on the show. But you can move up and do the $5 level, and at that level you get bonus audio. Once a week on Mondays, cut content from past episodes. If you move up to the next level, $10 a month, you get monthly horror short fiction uh, that I write. There's a new story every month, and these aren't published anywhere else. And I think there's some really cool ones in there, and when you join, you get access immediately to everything that's already been posted at that level, and of course, When you're at the higher level, you're going to get access to everything in the lower levels, too. There's some really cool stuff. Uh, For Halloween this year, I wrote a story about Dracula and Frankenstein's monster meeting. Um, Specifically, the novel version of both of those characters. The literary version of both of those characters. It's real good. So yeah. I'm not biased, but I am biased, and it's real good. So check this out at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Is it another kind of, like, big one? No. Oh. Um, I don't know really anything about this movie. Okay. Other than it's Universal Studios. It was originally meant to be on a double feature with Wolfman until Universal felt that Wolfman should just be released on its own because two horror movies in a row might be pushing their luck right after Pearl Harbor. Sure. Um, so it was released instead in very early 1942. And it stars Lionel Atwell in a typical Lionel Atwell role. You can kind of guess at what type of movie it is from the title. It's The Mad Doctor of Market Street. Is it like a version of Sweeney Todd, only he's like a scientist? Like, that's all I can think, is that it's like somehow like a mad scientist movie mixed with a Sweeney Todd story in one. I don't know. I know nothing about this movie, but we'll have to see it to find out. Well, tune in next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.